Welcome to this third episode of the Joint ICM and Anesthesia Clinical Guidance Hub podcast. These are being brought to you specifically to discuss management of the coronavirus disease. I'm Ravi McGrath, consultant anesthetist at Barts Health, and today I'm joined by the very eminent Professor William Harrop Griffiths. He is an elected Royal College of Anesthetists Council member, past president of the Association of Anesthetists, and keen obstetric and regional anesthetist at Imperial College Healthcare, NHS London. Most recently, he co-authored the very comprehensive guidance on personal protective equipment. And today, the theme of our discussion is resource management. Will, welcome. Ravi, good morning and, and, and welcome from long-haired lockdown in southwest London. I'm speaking to you from the heart of Barnes, just south of the river near Hammersmith. It's, I don't know what it's like with you, but it's a, a wonderful day outside. But I promise you, I am staying inside today, as I know are you. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Um, well, I wonder if we could just start. You were one of the organisers of this hub. I wonder if you could just give an overview of what it is. Thanks, Ravi. Yeah, so very quickly after it became evident that we were heading for what I think most people call the COVID crisis, we became aware of the possibility that different organisations who hold sway over intensive care medicine and anaesthesia in the United Kingdom have quite reasonably their own websites and were very keen to publish guidance for their members uh, about the management of coronavirus infection on their websites. And we were concerned that different guidance may be published. So there may be the broad sweep may be in the general direction, but if there were subtle differences between guidance coming out from the four main organisations, that that could be a problem for the members, because there's tremendous overlap between intensive care, medicine and anaesthesia, and tremendous overlap between the different organisations involved in those two specialities. And the four organisations I'm talking about are from Intensive Care Medicine, the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine and the Intensive Care Society, and for the Speciality of Anesthesia, the Association of Anesthetists and the Royal College of Anesthetists. So we four organisations, we four bodies got together to create a single hub website for the two specialities of Intensive Care Medicine and Anesthesia with the specific intention of highlighting authoritative guidance about the management of the disease and the management of our specialities and our staffing, drug usage, equipment usage during the crisis that was absolutely consistent. One of the main policies that we started with was, if possible, not to produce our own guidance because I know, you know, and everybody listening to this knows, we are not short of guidance. The idea was not to provide more guidance, but to signpost the guidance being published by the likes of NHS England and Public Health England and only produce guidance when we perceived either these organisations would not or could not produce guidance. And a, a fantastic example would be the airway guidance driven by the Difficult Airway Society, uh, led by Tim Cook and others, to make sure that members have the latest guidance on managing the airways of patients with COVID-19. So that was the idea behind it. Coordination, highlighting guidance when it exists, creating guidance that's approved by all four bodies where it doesn't exist. Thanks, well, that, that's very comprehensive. So I mean, in that vein, um, you've uh, 
co-authored the PPE guidance and presumably you've taken um, the lead from Public Health England. Um, if we just start our discussion on PPE, its availability and appropriate use, it, it's become somewhat of a political talking point at the moment. Um, if you don't mind, I'll momentarily play devil's advocate, if that's all right. Um, although your guidelines with uh, Professor Cook give a, a thorough description of when and where to don personal protection, it does stop short in comparison uh, to some countries' approach. Um, there's a new YAL paper, there seems to be papers out uh, daily, but the new YAL paper and the PGA articles in press. Two hospitals in Wuhan looked at 202 emergency trachea intubations, and the intubators suffered no ill effects. But the level of their PPE differed from what is being suggested in the UK. Um, for instance, they wore two layers, an inner layer, an N95 mask, goggles, protective coverall with hood and foot covers, and then an outer layer comprising of a surgical face mask, water-resistant full gown, a shield, a hood, and that was with or without powered air purifying respirators, the PAPRs. And Singapore, often quoted as an example of quality healthcare practice with regards to SARS management, they wear PP, uh, FFP3 masks and gowns for patient transfers and PAPR for all uh, AGPPs. Um, in the UK, we're being recommended what you term sessional PPE with aprons for transport. But there seems to be no mention of an inner layer or PAPR for NA AGPs. Do you think we need to go further with, with the guidance, with our current guidance, in order to protect frontline staff? Ravi, thank you for asking me that, that question. There has been a lot, as you say, a lot of concern about the wearing of PPE, a lot of drilling down quite rightly to the the amount of PPE, exactly what elements you should wear for exactly what situation. I'm going to come back and I'm going to say you won't find the word guidance associated with our PPE documents at all on the website. We are not the competent body in the UK to publish guidance on the wearing of PPE in the clinical context. That is very much to preserve of Public Health England. And what you will find on the website, the documents that Tim Cook and I and others worked on, are an interpretation of PHE guidance specifically for those involved clinically in intensive care medicine and anaesthesia. It would be fantastic to engage with you uh, on, a, on a long and complex debate full of three and four letter abbreviations uh, about exactly what you should wear in exactly what situation and how some countries have different equipment, some people have a different experience. I'm not going to do that, and I'm sorry if that's going to be disappointing, because we at the Royal College of Anaesthetists, the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine, the ICS, and the Association are very clear about this. We are taking guidance from Public Health England. It is possible to criticise Public Health England in their output and in their guidance documents that they publish, and I am perfectly prepared to criticise the nature of some of those documents, but what I cannot do and will not do at this time is oppose them in fundamental guidance because I think the most important thing that we have to do is have a consistent, a consistent and coherent way of managing things. There is a lot of anxiety about this. The problem with guidance that is not clear or that, that if we are in a situation in which there is opposing guidance, people will pick and choose their guidance 
and will accuse others of not providing adequate guidance. So there is only one guidance as far as I am concerned, that is that published by Public Health England. Our documents, our, our recommendations to our members practicing on the front line in a COVID-19 crisis is to obey Public Health England guidance. They are the people with the overview over the whole country, not only of the progression of the disease, any changes in the disease, practices across the country, but also in the availability of equipment. It is unenviable, but inevitable, that the guidance given has half an eye on availability. Uh, it's unattractive, it's unenviable, it is the reality Resources are not limitless, and it is irresponsible not to wear appropriate PPE for clinical circumstances. It is irresponsible in both ways. If you wear greater protection than you need, you are using up valuable resources. If you wear less protection than you need, you are putting yourself and thereby others at unnecessary risk. But the message, the, the lack of an answer to your very clear question was, we will follow Public Health England as long as Public Health England provide us with guidance. Thanks, Laura. That, that sort of clarifies it. Um, there's always been a proviso as well, isn't there, that we should be following our local guidelines and local guidelines that in our individual trusts seem to rely obviously on the up-to-date, most current PHE guidelines. Um, in your article on, on the Hub, you, you talked about the term hotspot areas in hospitals, so theatres, ICU, ED. In, in a recent publicised paper from Alta University in Finland, and uh, you can comment on this uh, shortly, there's the 3D modelling studies were looking at droplet spread in busy indoor spaces, and they found that spread from coughing individuals takes several minutes to disperse. Do you think that perhaps looking forward, particularly in geographical hotspots, so for instance, London, we should be considering all asymptomatic patients as potentially positive and perhaps the whole hospital as a hotspot? This really is the nub of a lot of concern, a lot of questions and a lot of discussion. And Public Health England, having been pressed over the last two weeks, have come down to a published view that it's for a local interpretation. My understanding is that the incidence of asymptomatic COVID-19 infection in the population in areas like Birmingham, the West Midlands, and in areas like London, is likely to be relatively high, is likely to be increasing or to have increased in the last week or two. So you are faced very clearly with the question about whether you should treat everybody as being COVID positive. I would wholeheartedly support any hospital, any operating theatre environment, any group of anaesthetists or theatre staff, midwives, obstetricians, who decided that for the overall benefit of the patients, of the people living in the area, and importantly of the healthcare workers, that they were to treat everybody as being COVID positive or COVID suspected. And I think that's the direction of travel that we're seeing. And that's why I think Public Health England reacted in their last output of creating the concept of an FFP3 mask, FFP2 or N95, that is worn for a session in order to prolong the usability of the higher levels of PPE. Um, 
in my hospital, we have now moved over in the main operating theatres to presuming that patients are COVID positive and treating all patients are COVID positive. I would not wish to suggest that everybody in the country does that at this stage, but it is a local decision and I would willingly support localities who made that decision on the basis of what they know is happening in their area. That, that seems very sensible that it should be down to the individual trusts and use whatever equipment you have depending on the geographical incidence of, of COVID-19. Uh, you were talking about shortages of equipment earlier and then again today in the papers there seems to be daily news about frontline staff uh, looking for masks, looking for visors. Um, some trusts are turning to 3D printing, uh, printing reusable as well as disposable uh, equipment. Well, what are your views on this and do you think there should perhaps be a, a standardised college ICS stamped downloadable file made available for people who want to do that? All I can say is in the hospital in my, which I work, there has been considerable concern and considerable anxiety about the availability of PPE equipment. There have been no shortages of PPE equipment uh, and we are very much at the sharp end. Now it may be that because we're a well-known London teaching hospital that we are shouting loudest getting first dibs on the PPE equipment. But I would be very concerned about the Royal College of Anesthetists and the other bodies represented on the Hub website, giving people license to create their own equipment that has not been subjected to testing by Public Health England and other competent bodies before using it on patients. I fully accept that there may be, and perhaps in the next few weeks there will be, hospitals in which they simply have not got visors and have to go down to B&Q or building supplies to buy visors or print them. I am not convinced yet, but I am prepared to be convinced that the time is right for us to provide guidance, clear guidance from a national bodies about how to make these yourself. So it is something which we will continue to discuss. It is something to which we will, about which we will continue to listen to our members. And it's something to which we are prepared to respond as an organization and group of organizations I remain to be convinced from my viewpoint within West London that we are the yet there. Okay. Um, there seems to be um, some disparity between uh, the Resuscitation Council UK's opinion on um, AGPs and Public Health England. And you mentioned that in your article on the Hub. Um, do you think that will change it? The moment it seems that uh, Public Health England state that um, cardiac CPR chest compressions are not an AGP, whereas um, the Resuscitation Council is saying, no, actually it is. Do you think this will have an effect on timing to start CPR? Having worked on ICU in the last few days, it takes several minutes to don CPR unless you are there at the patient's bedside. Do you think this will have an effect on whether you start CPR immediately or two, three minutes down the line? This, this really is uh, a very, very difficult situation. It's very disappointing that Public Health England and the Resuscitation Council UK cannot agree on whether chest compressions or aerosol generating procedures are not. I have a, a personal view, and I think that that personal view and the view of Professor Tim Cook is represented in the uh, interpretation document that we put on the website, 
And that is effectively that it's better to be safe than sorry. It is acknowledged by Public Health England that personal protection and the protection of healthcare workers is of paramount importance. And where there is risk, they should attend to themselves in terms of PPE before starting resuscitative maneuvers for the patients that they are looking after. While there is doubt, I think we should err on the side of safety and agree with the Resuscitation Council at UK that chest compressions are potentially aerosol generating. We know that tracheal intubation, which often, go along, often goes along with cardiopulmonary resuscitation, is definitely aerosol generating. We think that we should err on the safety and presume it is until the two organisations can agree, if they do agree, that it isn't. So in that respect, we've heard very much on the side of the safety of our members and of the public. That's very wise advice and we'll watch the space. Um, well, I know time is pressing, but I'd, I'd like to move on to um, the issue of potential changes to anaesthetic drug use and administration. Again, this is also making um, national news with the Vice President of the Royal College of Anesthetists, Mike Grocott, saying that we are seeing some drugs being in relatively short supply. And presumably he's referring to the whole gamut of, of our often used agents for induction, sedation, neuromuscular blockers, analgesia, and vasopressors. Could you perhaps give us some indication of where the most acute shortages are and how and when we should act to prevent this? Well, first of all, let me say that the four bodies who are behind the Hub website uh, have been working hand in hand with NHS England on exactly this topic. And if you go to the Hub website, icmanesthesiacovid-19.org, uh, you will find guidance documents for intensive care physicians and for anaesthetists ab about trying to release the pressure on the supply of some drugs. Now, we're very careful not to use the word shortages. We haven't had yet any clear reports of drug shortages of first-line drugs for use on patients in intensive care, things like propofol, things like rocuronium, things like alfentanil and fentanyl. But we are aware that demand is increasing rapidly and that increasing supply is very difficult because these drugs are not only wanted by the UK, everybody in the world wants these drugs. So we have set out what we think is clear guidance on minimising their use when it is not necessary. And we've been looking primarily at anaesthetists, urine anaesthetists as well. We live with sudden drug shortages. We have done for years. We always have done. Uh, you can go in one day and somebody will say, there's no diamorphine. Uh, there's a shortage of supply. We have pharmacological knowledge, we have physiological knowledge, we have anaesthetic knowledge, we know what other drugs we can safely use in the place of these drugs. We already have those plans in our mind anyway. But what we've presented on the website is a synthesis of the National Essential Anaesthetic Drugs List produced by the Association of Anaesthetists some three or four years ago that identify for anaesthetists what second line drugs can be safely used if your first line drug is not available. Now, you are talking, Ravi, to quite an old man now. I first <laughs> gave an anaesthetic in 1982. My first anaesthetic consisted of thiopentone, the brand new drug at that time, isoflurane, and a relaxant called pancuronium. And there's a little warmth deep down in my bosom that's looking forward for the return of these drugs. The drugs we didn't stop using these drugs because they weren't safe. 
we started using these drugs was drugs that were slightly more convenient or slightly better, no safer, but slightly better came along. And there's part of me that's kind of looking forward to going back to them. That that's, may sound slightly facetious, but there is a body of people who knows how to use these drugs. We are sharing that knowledge with younger people who may not have used these drugs via a project which is being led by the association, providing documents will, will be published in the next few days, so towards the end of the week, starting the 13th of April 2020, that, that will remind those people how to use thiopentone rather than propofol, how to use isoflurane rather than sevoflurane, how you can use morphine and you don't always have to use fentanyl and so on and so forth. We are laying down plans now to try and limit the use of potential shortage drugs like propofol so that we continue to give a safe anaesthetic service, a safe intensive care medicine service should we run into a problem between supply and demand of these drugs. In, in essence, we've been thinking about this for a while. We've published guidance, we'll continue to publish guidance, and we'll continue to support the members of the four organizations in providing safety. They may not be first line drugs, but they will be safe drugs, and there are plenty of drugs available as we speak. I always knew there was a reason that the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of thiopentone and pancuronium were on the FRCA syllabus and we examined them. And now our younger colleagues will be able to put it to good use. Um, just on a, a practical level, will that mean we change the way we give our anaesthetics? Are we going to no longer be giving TIVA? Are we going to be no longer be giving remifentanil? Um, I know the guidance is going to be coming out soon, but could, could you give us a little taster perhaps? Do you know, Ravi, I know that you are a knowledge expert in the management of difficult airways, and this, this may cause you a little bit of sadness, but one of the recommendations we, we make is to increase the use of regional anaesthesia. And I'm a regional anaesthetist, so this makes me very proud because... Yes, I'm very unhappy about that. Intubation and extubation are airway-generating procedures. The use of laryngeal mask airways, insertion, removal, lightweight. People cough when you put things in their throat. They tend not to cough when you pop needles into the neuraxis around peripheral nerves. So I'm not trying to say that everybody should, against their wishes, receive a regional anaesthetic, but we are aware that where regional anaesthesia can be safely used, where the patient gives their permission, having been properly consented to their use, that will increase safety for the patient, for the staff, and for the public. So first of all, use regional anaesthesia where it is practicable and where you can get patient consent. Secondly, do not use TIVA unless there is an absolute indication and the only one we could find was for a patient with malignant hyperpyrexia. I know there are other relative indications, nausea and vomiting, some would say uh, cancer operations, but I think right now there is a more important crisis. Propofol for induction where it's available, but certainly not for maintenance. So make these difference. The shorter acting opioids like alfentanil, remifentanil, fentanyl are favored by many intensive care unit doctors for use on patients who are difficult to ventilate. Morphine and diamorphine are not in any short supply at all at the moment. They are very, very good painkillers that last for an awful lot longer than things like alfentanil, remifentanil, and fentanyl. Old people like me still use them in preference to those drugs it is possible to do. You can make small changes, not big changes, in order to preserve drugs. And that's what we, as the four organizations who are behind the Hub website, that's what we like people to do. Don't make dangerous changes, make changes within your sphere of competency, 
that are safe for the patient after patient consent that will preserve drugs for those who need them most. Fantastic, thank you. Well, I'd like to have discussed workforce, but we, we seem to be running a little bit out of time. We perhaps need to start winding down. I wonder, with your college hat on, if you could give us a perspective of how, I know this may be difficult, about how, how our resource management may change further over the coming weeks and months. I'm going to have to put that question back to you. Resources in terms of staff, resources in terms of equipment, resources in terms of drugs, or resources in terms of everything? That is a blanket um, a definition of resource, so anything okay. you like. One of the really interesting things that's coming through at the moment is about the use of overall hospital resources. And we're finding out and we're learning from central authorities that people with urgent but not immediately urgent procedures required are not getting them. So we're talking about uh, chronic ischemia and aneurysms within the sphere of vascular surgery. We're talking about cancer operations. We're talking about people with trauma who need secondary non-immediate procedures in order to improve their recovery. A lot of these are not getting delivered and that's causing us considerable concern. There are a lot of reasons why they're not being delivered. One of the reasons is a lack of availability of anaesthetists. It was entirely reasonable for hospitals as an early reflex action to pull all the anaesthetic trainees into intensive care medicine, to pull an awful lot of consultants and anaesthetists into intensive care medicine, and to leave the remaining consultants and anaesthetists to mainly shift work to support intensive care medicine and the emergency department in managing the COVID treatment. What we're kind of learning, some parts of the country have got quieter intensive care units than they would normally have at this time of year. Others, certainly West Midlands and London, are very busy. But we may not have got this balance. We may not have got it right. The bottom line is, if you give me a moderately intelligent surgeon or physician, I can turn them into a sort of limited amateur intensivist in two or three days. But only anaesthetists can give anaesthetics. We have sucked too many anaesthetists out of anaesthesia probably for the delivery of these operations for which we have some capacity. So I think what you'll see in the next week or two is a slight swing of focus of anaesthetists back to anaesthesia as non-anaesthetic clinicians are cross-skilled to be able to perform the simpler tasks related to intensive care medicine. And that's what I'd like to see. That's what I'd like departments of anaesthesia around the country to think about. There are patients who require cancer surgery, trauma surgery, vascular surgery, that we do not have the capacity because of the shortage of anaesthetists, think about whether you can bring some of your anaesthetists back into anaesthesia because we are an absolutely vital resource. We do not want to find, after this crisis is over, people's lives being shortened, people's ability to move and enjoy themselves being impacted because they did not get timely surgeon surgery during the crisis. Have a think about it. Can you give anaesthetists back to anaesthesia? Thank you. That's an excellent perspective. And I think on that note, Professor William Harrop Griffiths, thank you for joining me today. Ravi, it's been a pleasure chatting to you.